Welcome to season five, the final season of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. In this show, we've been talking to some real life experts on how they've been getting through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and still those darn feelings of helplessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we have been more than prepared for this moment than we ever would have realized. So let's get started and see what we can relearn one last time. Friday, March 26th. 2021 and this is the final interview with Tori and it needs to begin with good news hopefully maybe I don't know Tori let's try and see if we can meet this challenge you know how there's these things where you're supposed to like bookend or sandwich a hard conversation and you're supposed to say good things at the beginning and good things at the end and maybe talk about some like harder things more critical things in the middle could we try that now? Let's do it. Okay. So what let's let's start off with some good news. And recently, I think like just a day or two ago, you posted something on social media that I was like, wait, what? And I had to reread it and reread it. And so maybe, I don't know, can you pull it up? Can you just read it? What did you post on social media a couple of days ago that didn't have a picture. It didn't have a GIF. It didn't have bells and whistles on it, but you could sense all of those things just with the few words that you posted. What did you say? I posted one day ago, not to brag or anything, but out of my three family members fighting cancer in 2020, none of them currently have cancer in their bodies anymore. And they are all doing great. Hashtag resilient AF. So that happened in the middle of still this pandemic and, and already past a year with a few days of the first orders to, you know, shelter in place, if you will, to stay inside, to stay away. And did you see that coming a year ago today? Nothing that has happened in the last year did I see coming a year ago today. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Excellent point. All, all excellent points there. And I think everything we've been through in the past year, you know, having the life of your loved ones be saved is never not the most amazing that's ever happened to you. And feeling that preciousness against the backdrop of the pandemic against the incredible loss we've all experienced just from the pandemic alone let alone the like plagues of of cancer and all these other crises that you know our communities are facing i feel unbelievably exceptionally like lucky and don't take any of it for granted so today is a very very good day it has been so awkward the last like month and a half. And, and I wonder how you feel about this too, because, you know, okay, let me just get to it. It has been interesting the last few months with the vaccines. Okay. We started out with the vaccines and there's this priority, you know, with hospital workers and the elderly and some hospital workers are like, I'm not even going to take it. And that's the beginning of like, wait, what? I don't get a chance to get it right away, but the people who are are deciding, some of them, I'm gonna pass. Mm -hmm. 
And then you get to the elderly and you're like, great, I'm so happy that you're vaccinating elderly folks. But I had a loved one who died a month before her house, her elderly senior living place was able to get vaccines. And so I was like, great, but you're like a month late, right? And so you have this like happy and sad and you have this like excitement and resentment happening at the same time. And I know that you and I had spoken and we were like, when we get the vaccine, we are letting each other know like right away. And so you were like, wait, you got the vaccine? It's like I did, but I didn't want to tell anybody. So like I got the vaccine. And then I remember getting a text message, a text message from you that you had gotten the vaccine. I was like, oh my God. And, and I, I wasn't prepared for it. And little by little, every single person on this podcast started getting the vaccine. And I was just away at home last week and four of my family members got the vaccine while I was there for a week in California. And so it's like starting to happen. And yet there's still people like left behind waiting. And so what was it like for you to be like, hello, should have gotten the vaccine on day one. I'm the mob of, of a, you know, a child, a little baby who has cancer. Like, why am I not getting, and then you get it. Like what, what were the last few months like for you in the waiting game and seeing others get it? And then once you got it, like, can you explain what that time was like for you? Yeah, it was, it was hard because I could balance the fact that like I'm the mother of a child with cancer and not only do I need to keep him safe, but like I can't get sick. Like I cannot, I am holding this child's entire world together and all of the medications and the schedules and the doctor's appointments and the scans. And if one fraction of that um, falls to the cracks, it's, it's life or death. So I think when we talk about frontline healthcare workers, we talk a lot about the exposure um, that their bodies, I think it's a little bit of like an ableist framing of like, just like protecting their bodies from exposure and from transmission of, mm. of others. But I think when we, what I was not hearing in the discourse or in the categories of who's in 1A, who's in 1B, who gets to go next, who's prioritized are the people that are the caregivers of mm -hmm. medically fragile and vulnerable people that are not replaceable and their skills are not transferable. And if this person gets sick, if I get sick, the person I'm keeping alive every day could die. And there was no plan for that because right. I would ask them at the hospital if he is positive and I am positive, how do we get admitted? If I get admitted, what happened? Like there was no plan for what would happen if we were both positive and how his care would be prioritized. And so, you know, eventually I think those things have started to come, but the the pandemic taught us that care workers are essential workers that, mm -hmm. um, you know, that frontline workers are what keep our society intact and up and running and functioning and keep us fed. And, um, and that so much of that has been invisibilized. And, and even on top of that in, um, a place where 
so much of the caregiving I do as, as the mother of a med medically fragile child is still, still unseen, um, at least in, in my region. So, and the only reason I ended up getting vaccinated was not because of my son's situation. It was because of, I happened to live in a zip code that had a high infection rate. Get out. So it was by chance. Even, even my son's paid caregivers, because of his status, are technically home health care workers. So they were the first to get vaccinated. But because I wasn't employed as a home health care worker, because I was uh, technically a client and um, mm -hmm. a mother, I was not able to get vaccinated. And, and, and so you've got that aspect. And then mm -hmm. so you get you get the vaccine. And, and I want to keep talking about those particular, you know, who does and who doesn't get prioritized in just a minute. But so then you get the vaccine. What did that feel like? And have you gotten the second one? Are you are you in the clear now? Are you in the middle? I am in the clear. It, I have not felt that feeling since like Christmas morning when I was like nine years old, like that <laughs> level of just like magic and whimsy of this thing you have just been waiting for with bated breath has finally come and it's it's now with you um it was unbelievable it was you know very anticlimactic um but i felt more proud and more grateful than like probably second only to like giving birth I think it was wow. I felt safe. I felt safe. I felt and safe. Which one did you get? I got the Pfizer one. Mm. So the first one, I just felt like, you know, I was punched in the arm for a day. I think I was a little bit sleepy, but I'm always a little bit sleepy. I'm a mom. Um, and the second one, I really was only sick for, you know, a little, a little bit sick, a little under the weather for maybe 10 hours. Um, so overall, I had a very good reaction. Look at you. Look at you. And, and my best friend, um, who lives in a different part of the country, drove two hours, waited two hours, and had anaphylactic shock to her vaccine. She was one of the one in a million, and she was fine. They have the protocol. She got the Benadryl or the EpiPen or however they managed it, brought her to a hospital. She didn't even have to stay overnight. Um, and even talking to her afterwards, it was really scary. And she was, the first thing she said was, I really hope everyone else gets their vaccine because I need herd immunity now because I'm going to be one of the people that can't get fully vaccinated. And I really hope everyone else who can does. So even someone- Because she couldn't get the second one? Because you couldn't get the second one. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, her adverse reaction was not, I knew this would happen, or this vaccine is trash, or I knew this was a bad idea. It was like, wow, I guess I'm the rare one. I hope everyone else does the thing that we need to do to keep people, you know, like me and other people who can't get vaccinated at all, yeah. safe. And I thought that was really great perspective to hold through, through one of those, like, bad case scenarios. Well, that's that's exactly... That's exactly the thing, you know, um, 
we're learning a lot about the vaccine as more folks are getting it, as we have even more time, not just in trials, but in like real life trials. Like, just to be clear, we're still kind of in a trial right now. I still respond to these like weekly, monthly, you know, text messages. I signed up for vSafe right away, um, which is this national system that they're tracking folks who got the vaccine to see how they're feeling, how they're recovering, both short term and long term. And, um, you know, I think we've talked about this perhaps on other episodes, but maybe not, which is that, you know, my oncologist has said early on was thinking when the vaccine comes, it's unclear just how many different ways it'll have an effect. Like, will it affect the medication that I have infused into my body? And so more tumors will develop. Like, will it, will it affect the medication that I take to keep my, my tumors at bay and to stay stable? Will it hurt that? Or an additional possibility is that no, that'll be fine, but maybe my chemotherapy medication will actually have an effect on the vaccine. And I, like your friend, will have less immunity because it's actually changing and attacking that. And so that's how we started. It could mess up both things. You could not have full vaccination and you could be harming the medication that you're taking right now. Mm -hmm. Then more studies came out. The vaccine actually came and I met with my oncologist and I was like, what's the plan? And he says, our office has decided we're following national guidance. Everybody, regardless of what kind of chemo you're on, we're advising that they get the vaccine because you're still more vulnerable and we want to get some sort of the vaccine in you. And all the studies at that point had said that the vaccine wouldn't affect people's chemo. But what we still don't know is how much our chemo will affect the vaccine. And so I'm always more compromised during chemo month and the month after. Will I be even more so with when it comes to COVID-19, will I, will I lose my quote immunity? And, you know, I don't just get chemo once, you know, it's multiple times. And so I read a recent study last weekend where they said two things. Number one, turns out that maybe the mutation of the virus is happening in immunocompromised bodies because we cannot fight it. Did you see that? Because we can't fight it. We actually allow it to mutate and it goes out. So if you're immunocompromised and you get COVID, you're helping it get mutated out into the world. And then the second thing that they said is because of that, hmm, maybe when we say that 65 year olds who have less of a, a powerful immune system, that's why we want to give them the vaccine. We should have prioritized immunocompromised people too, so that things wouldn't mutate and so that they would be safe and protected. And I was like, I'm so excited that you are discovering this now, a year after all of this, right? So that safety, your friend being that in that group that goes into, you know, how do you say it? Anaphylactic shock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and now can't get fully vaccinated. There might be more folks like that than we realize happening right now. And as we keep happening, you know, in terms of getting the vaccine and feeling safer. And so what does that then do to your optimism, right? Like we started out to, this is the point, this is the part in the sandwich where things get critical and hard before we end on the high note, right? So you have three family members who yes. are now cancer-free and we all know that that doesn't mean that they will be cancer-free for forever. It is a horrible disease that once you have it, you constantly need screenings to make sure that it hasn't returned. Yes. 
And also talking about the vaccine and knowing that like, well, when will we all get the vaccine again? What will we have to do to stay safe and keep each other safe other than everybody getting the vaccine and that herd immunity? In that article, one of the things they said is potentially folks who we see have less of a vaccination, maybe they get the antibodies. And they need to get some antibodies to like have that stopgap. So maybe your friend who went into shock gets antibodies to keep them safe, right? So they're working on some possible solutions. But how do, how do you feel about the like nine-year-old Christmas, I got everything I wanted, but then you're 10. And what you got when you were nine is no longer what you want when you're 10. Well, that's the thing about Christmas morning, right? It all ends up dusty in the attic in like six months. <clears throat> and, you know, I think... I have a very, I, I think I've said this on one of the previous podcasts that I allow myself bursts of, of joy and stability for 12 week windows, because that is the amount of time that exists between scams. And when we get a clear set of scans, it is Christmas morning all over again. And that last, I give myself 12 weeks. And in that 12 weeks, we do everything that we can um, to really maximize that feeling, keep it alive, have adventures, because I'm not going to waste time worrying about the next set of scans if I have an opportunity now to be happy. That doesn't mean that, you know, we drop our guard, that we stop being vigilant, that we... Um, make concessions on medications or protocols or, or anything like that. I think, you know, that's something they talk about in the oncology world is your life is never going to go back. You're never going to get that pre-diagnosis life back. It is forever changed. It doesn't mean it's over. It doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean it's, you know, sad or less than, um, but it will always be different. And I think we are living in a, um, a, a post COVID moment or like a, a an, an after mm-hmm. COVID-19 moment. It's, it's like that, like, you know, BC and AD, like there's just like a line in the sand and then things were different and understood through a different lens. And, and we're in that space now and we don't know what will come of it. Um, and I think we can still experience great joy, great resilience, great connection humans always find a way to connect and to celebrate. And I don't think masks are going away. I don't think stay at home orders are going away forever. Um, I think we live in a different landscape that we will adapt to because that's what people do, we adapt. But now, see, that feels contradictory. You said we adapt. And you also said there's no going back. And so how do you explain two mass shootings in two weeks? How do you explain then the separation and incarceration of brown young people and families at the border, even with a new administration? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you explain workers still organizing and pushing for better working conditions at Amazon and fast food industries. How do you explain the fact that we tried again to get a raise in the minimum wage and it did not pass? How do you explain so many things 
that have returned in the Mm. midst of no returning. Like, I don't know that we are adapting at the pace and at the scale that we need to. It feels more evolutionary where it's so small and so long before we actually can track, oh, change was made. Because, you know, I was sitting at home and the first, you know, news of shootings in Atlanta came out and then Colorado happened. And my Mm -hmm. partner said, well, I guess we are back to normal because this was the normal that we had gotten used to because we adapted by just Mm -hmm. getting used to mass shootings. Mm -hmm. So is adapting where we just get used to things Things that that come? Yeah. Yeah. So is that resilience? Is adaption uh, resilience? What's the fine line and difference there? I, I think that, you know, white supremacy has had a pretty constant thread. Like that has gone nowhere. And we've seen that in parallel with COVID. And, mm-hmm. and that is, you know, we didn't, we didn't take a break from these systems of, of exploitation and neoliberalism, if anything, they were even more highlighted. And, and I think people are getting increasingly intolerant of them. And you're right, there, there are ways in which we get desensitized to things that are in, intolerable and terrible. And I think the question is, what is within our control what are areas we can have agency over and what is an element of nature that we need to adapt to. And I think there's a lot of debate, you know, across party lines of what is nature, what is nurture, what is Mm -hmm. human nature and what is social construct. Um, And I think that it is interesting to see the areas in which we choose as a civic and political body to exert domination and control and the areas in which we choose to be very like hands off and just like, well, we got to adapt. Um, And I think depending on what vantage point we're coming from, like depends on how we kind of like organize things into those two areas that this, this can be changed and we must change it or this cannot be changed and we must adapt to it. What's interesting is that, you know, you and I are, you know, folks who, who met in a particular place about, you know, organizing and learning how to incorporate different strategies into organizing for, you know, a world that is more just and, um, for social justice, whether it's climate justice, racial justice, gender justice, what have you, all of it. We want it all. There is no thing that we don't want justice around. And we use these words like to adapt and to be resilient. And all of those things are about basically just having to tough out the shit that happens to us. Mm -hmm. It's not about the work that we do to change it. So listen to these two different definitions. And I'm I'm struck by how much they are similar and yet different, but not. So hold on one second. Here's the definition for adapt. Ready? Mm -hmm. Make something suitable 
for new use or purpose to modify, right? So take something and make it suitable for a new use or purpose. That reminds me of how like masks were being used on the West Coast when the fires were so intense that people couldn't breathe. And then we modify them. They are adapted to then be used for preventing the spread of COVID-19. Maybe adaption is also how you and I, from different vantage points, caregiver, primary caregiver of someone with cancer, me dealing with cancer medications and chronic illness, how we adapted the skills that we learned to get through those moments in the medical industry with health, with safety around health and others to this moment, because it just happened on a different scale. We adapted what we were doing just for us to also share that with the larger us um, needing to do things. But here's resilience, right? So adaption has some action to it, right? You do this thing. Resilience, the definition is the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties, toughness. And so it's a little bit different because it's not about changing or modifying. It's about holding on. It's about weathering storms. Mm -hmm. And so it reminds me of the difference between like um, nonviolent action and violent, uh, you know, resistance movements, right? Resilience is, can I be still? Can I get through this moment? Can I be nonviolent in the face of violence? And adaptation is, oh, you're going to throw a gas canister at me. I'm going to throw it back with a tennis racket, right? And so I'm just trying to figure out like, what, what are the lessons there for us here now? Because then adapting and resilience makes sense for why nothing has really changed. I would argue that there is a third category. Ooh. I think we start with resilience. Resilience is our ability to withstand acute crises and find our center and bend but not break. Mm -hmm. And if we can achieve resilience, then we can find our footing, find our balance, find our center and assess, assess what we have to work with, the people, the conditions, the materials and adapt use um, to meet the changed conditions. And then I believe adaptation is a very creative process. And then that third level, which I think we've yet to get to, and I hope we do get to, that I think we believe in is transformation. So I think you need to be resilient fundamentally so that you can have the faculty to go through the process of adaptation to figure out what you've got to work with and put it all together in a different way in a process of transformation. And then I think at the end of that, we end up in a different place. I don't think we're going to get to utopia. I don't think there's been a phase of human existence where there wasn't like bullshit and suffering and oppression and violence. But I think our journey of humanity is to like go through these cycles of crisis and transformation into a trajectory where it like sucks a little bit less tomorrow than it did yesterday, or maybe it's just 
a little bit different and and evolution is not linear it's just more present of like more suited for the now um so i think transformation is the journey transformation's definition is a thorough or dramatic change in form or appearance a thorough or dramatic change in form or appearance. I think you might be onto something there, my friend, but I have to say that I also got really sad when you said that there is no utopia. There's no utopia? I mean, I'm not omniscient. <laughs> I didn't listen to this podcast once that was... um that made me maybe convinced that there was this guy who fell into a hole and landed 3000 years into the future and may have found utopia, um, which I would consider anecdotal evidence more than real hard data. Um, but I don't think there can be because if it's Christmas morning every day, we would just be a bunch of like happy people. <laughs> I see how we went in very different directions with that. Hmm. I mean, that's the thing. Like I, I, Christmas was so transformed. I didn't recognize it. It was so different. It was so just not at all recognizable this year that I didn't like it. I was like, it was canceled. Like it just didn't happen. It felt like Christmas just didn't happen because it didn't look the way I wanted it to. Like when I think about tragedies in the United States, these mass shootings that happened the last two weeks, those are totally recognizable, right? And we, we get these phrases that politicians say, like right now, today, and the last few weeks and days and months, we have been dealing with, and actually decades, voting, right? Like we say we're a democracy, that people should vote, that we, we do this thing with like voting and it's so sacred. And yet right now, you know, the more conservative party lost because they just don't have the votes and they're so afraid of becoming the minority party instead of adapting, instead of being resilient, instead of transforming. They're like, no, we're going to try and stay just as racist and horrible as we've always been. The grand old party, after all. And so they're just like, so now what we're going to do, since we're not willing to change, we're just going to change the game. We're going to change how it works. We're going to make it harder for people to vote so that it'll be harder for us to lose. And so that's happening. And I, the politicians right now, including the current president, President Biden is like, that's so un-American, you know, cheating and not like, you know, uh, making sure that everyone can vote. Like, that's so un-American. No, it is so American. The most American thing. Exactly. And that has been happening all year. And for the last like decade, people say like, this isn't us. And it's like, no, it is so us. Like, we have this idea of what we think we are. And there are some of us who have who have woken up to like, this is so not who we are. And that gives us some peace knowing that I'm just gonna not see life through these rosy glasses. I'm gonna see it through like reality. And I'm not gonna deny that. And so it's so interesting that like, again, 
What is so American is exactly what has happened this year and what is happening right now. This is the most American story that anyone could ever tell. It's just tell the story of this year. If you want to know what America is like, if you want to know what America has been like historically and what it's like to really be an American, just pay attention to this one year of COVID-19 between, you know, 2020 and 2021. And this is the American story. I agree that this is the most American year. And I would completely disagree with your assessment of the right <laughs> of being, of being that like, like of being not resilient, not adaptive, not transformative. I think there's this, maybe I'm implying that like transformation is somehow this like moral thing or this like leftist thing or this thing that is always is, 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 going to lead to utopia and that's that's not it i think i think everything you described shows if you don't like the rules or if you don't like the game change the rules like like they did face you know certain degrees short-term defeat they adapted and they're changing the rules they're using the power they have for their own self-interest they're placing their will and their vision of what they want to see and going through whatever transformative process they can get their hands on it. I think the right is so much better at it than the left is because the left like loves rules and asking permission and like- We really do like rules, don't we? Oh my gosh, so much. Like, oh, well, we don't have full consent, can't move forward. Or like, well, <laughs> they like, like I think there's so much stagnancy where, where the right is like, we're moving, we are going and we will- lie and cheat and usurp and dominate and and by any means necessary get where we're going and i think i don't i don't like that i don't think that's good i don't think that's like morally aligned but i do think it's very consistent in what we're seeing in terms of like human behavior american behavior evolutionary behavior is persistence to survive at any cost and I think we have different assessments of that if that's like a very individual game versus like something that is like collective and altruistic and um you know community bound but yeah I think we just have different interests that are using the same process oh my god against each other in opposite directions and well, thanks. This is the. <laughs> oh, this is part. You said you wanted to go go in. Yeah, yeah, I know, but I, I think I was maybe like, <laughs> I think maybe I was kidding. But okay, so that that is the meaty part. Let's see if we can finish the sandwich proper. All out of the soul. So, so I have to say, one of the things that is different for you and I in our relationship to illness and caretaking and health is that, you know, my caregiver um, could also get the vaccine and she got the vaccine. And so my partner's vaccinated, my close family members are vaccinated, my closest friends are vaccinated who often come in and help um, and I'm vaccinated. But your son is not vaccinated because he's a kid. Yeah. And so we're not in the same place there. But we're also not in the same place because I'm an adult, last I checked, and sometimes people remind me. And um, my partner is also an adult, and we're equals. 
and we're supposed to be there for each other. And there are moments in my life where I need to take up a lot more space in my relationship because I have physical medical needs and I can't be there for my partner. And I want to be because she's going through hard times too, watching me not do well and not be well and be worried about me. And it's really hard when you're in a relationship like this, because everyone asks about you, the sick one, mm-hmm. the person who's going through hard times, and nobody really asks about the caregiver and how they are and what they're going through as if they're not. And so you and I have different spaces in that way. So I'm wondering how you feel about the fact that you're safer, but your child is not. Mm-hmm. And who what is it like for you? Like, I, I can imagine that as the parent, people don't see you and your child as equals. And so they, they, you, I imagine that you get a lot of comfort. You get a lot of like, how are you and what can we do for you? And that maybe your child doesn't get the kind of attention that they need. It's like opposites. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just wondering, what is, what is that aspect like? Yeah, it's, it's real and it's, it's hard. Um, I think the hardest thing for my, so my child had two bone marrow transplants. So my child doesn't have any vaccinations in his system. He doesn't have MMR. He doesn't have chicken pox. He has, doesn't have pull, like nothing, nothing in his system at all. So he is, we, he has been completely unvaccinated for going on three years. And we have been terrified of any time that there is kind of a flare up of, of measles or whooping cough, those things are far more likely to kill him than COVID. And, you know, he has been through sepsis, which we've talked about and has almost died. And so I do have very lived experience of multiple times seeing my child on the edge of death, which I ideally most parents have never had to experience. Um, and so I think that my vantage point is different because it's while I am definitely traumatized by the things that I've seen Mm -hmm. because I've seen them before I'm under no illusions that I will see them again. Um, It's a matter of when, and who. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of live my life in that manner. I never really feel fully secure. I feel 12 weeks secure. Um, so for me, I feel safe. And I feel that Jonah's best chance to be safe is if to the extent that I can keep him safe. Um, because he is little and I am big. And in terms of support, the hardest thing is that he's not been able to play with kids regularly since he was two years old. And he's going to be six this summer. And he is not getting the socialization, the friends, the community, the peer identification. He's been living in quarantine for his entire, you know, self-aware life. He's been a bubble boy. And, you know, there are times when it's safe for him to play, but the majority is not. And so 
there is, as we come out of this, a tremendous amount of, of catch up. I think, I think what's happening is, as we come out of COVID-19 and we assess what is the collateral damage of what we have done in order to survive. And we look at, you know, the variants. We look at the social and the economic impacts. Um, we look at all of these factors. It's, it's the same thing that we're doing in our family. So it's really easy when you get a clear scan or when you ring the bell if you're in remission for people to be like, oh, you're done, out of crisis, it's over, it's over. We just mm-hmm. move on now. And I think people are waiting for that moment with COVID-19 where it's just, it's over and we move on. Whereas in reality, when you have had medical crisis or a chronic condition, it's forever and it will be some time before you see the real impacts of what you've had to do to survive. I think we have all been doing this all the time. I think that's why we have, you know, all sorts of various mental health challenges and trauma. All of us are always just trying to survive life. And oftentimes it's decades into being an adult with our therapist that we realize like, oh, actually this is some baggage I'm carrying around this, or this is a side effect, or this is um, something I need to unlearn because it's no longer serving me and keeping me safe. And that's a constant process of surviving and then undoing, unlearning, letting things go, taking things on. And so when I talk about that, like process of, you know, resilience, adaptation and transformation, it's just constantly adapting to shifting conditions that will sometimes be more acute, more pronounced, more visible, more invisible, but always present. And I think the caregiving and especially the community care is so essential. Like, especially in this moment, you know, you were saying like, I'm going through so much and I can't be present through my, for my partner right now because my need is so high and my capacity to give is so low. I think we're seeing that on a systemic level. I've had so many conversations this past month being like, I'm at a 10 and I feel like no one is there for me because I'm physically isolated or socially distant from people or not part of a pod or whatever it is, or just everyone else is in crisis too. And I think systemically we're all at a 10 and we all need a lot and we have very little to give. And I think that is kind of the next wave we're going to see as we come out of this and we experience the PTSD of what we've all collectively endured hitting us once we feel safe again, once we're all vaccinated, once the schools are open, once we like let go out of survival mode, it is all gonna hit us. Cause then we've gone from crisis into survivorship and survivorship is its own chapter. And so when I say, there's no going back. I mean, there are, there is the like political side of it that is sure. All of our systems of oppression are still intact. But as a society, I think we've gone from being somewhat naive, maybe, I don't know the word for it, to like collective acute trauma and crisis. And as that door closes, we're going to enter survivorship. And we, I don't think, no, that's not true. I think there are 
huge portions of our population that have been in collective survivorship, but I don't know to the degree to which we've had really over the table conversations about that experience and that process. So I think that's what's coming next. Absolutely. I mean, I think, and those are really hard moments because what happens is you don't, you really need to unpack the horrible thing that happened. And that's the very thing that nobody wants to do. Like it's over. I don't want to talk about that. Why are we still talking about this? It's over. It's over. I want to move on. And it's like, can you though? Can you move on without unpacking this hard thing that you just went through? And and that's been the thing, you know, like, yeah, I, I can't be there for my partner, but turns out nobody can. Nobody has the capacity to hear her out. Everybody has some crisis happening. And P.S., when the majority of your friends are Asian American women, you really don't have right now any place to go. And neither do they, right? Like we all need someone right now and there's no one around because everyone's busy. And so one of the things that I have come across in therapy is this idea of exposure treatment, right? What happens when you take something that's so bad and you put it away in a box and you dig it under the ground and you're like, don't come back. You're never coming back. And then it does because you didn't unpack it. And so you start to adapt in a way where you're like, well, I'm just not going to see that person. I'm just never going to wear that again. I'm just never going to come over here. And you can't really live that way. And so you get exposed to it again and the PTSD happens and you get all dramatic again. And the way to deal with that is exposure treatment where you expose yourself to the very thing that is too traumatic for you to deal with until you can deal with it, until it's just a story versus an experience that you relive over and over again. And through that exposure treatment, it's kind of like herd immunity. Mm. It becomes this thing where you have now put yourself in the face of the very things that harm you and are dramatic for you so that they no longer are much like herd immunity. Everybody get COVID, everybody get the vaccine, get exposed to this thing. That's also dangerous. We're not really sure about what it's going to do so that we can all be safe. And I feel like this exposure and herd immunity is how we get to mass shootings that still happen. We're exposed over and over and over again. We're like, well, this is just how it is to the point where you have drills for it. Now you have drills to be prepared for when it happens because we're just accepting that it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so we are in that moment where we know that maybe cancers will return. Maybe another pandemic will return. Maybe things will not go back to a totally incomplete normal. And are we going to be okay with that? So let's end on that last part of the sandwich. I asked you at the beginning of the podcast, what did this moment remind you of and how did you get through that moment? We have just gone through a moment. We are about to potentially go into the moment of survivorship. So if you could leave a message for Jonah so that when Jonah is an adult, they are able to hear the advice of how Jonah got through this year and how they can continue to get through these moments. But also imagining that you're leaving a message for you and maybe even descendants of Jonah. What are the things that you want to put in a little time capsule 
of, I don't want to forget how I got through this year because I did this. Tori, you got through this year and not only got through it, but like kind of, kind of got through it better in the end. Like you entered in with three family members having cancer and, and how are you now? Three don't. So how did you get through this moment for this year? And what do you want to remember so that when should these things happen again, you remember, okay, this is, this is what I got to put in my emergency kit because this is how I get through this. Three things. First thing, some advice a doula gave me when I started breastfeeding because it was painful and horrible and I hated it, which is if you can survive this for a minute, you can survive it for an hour. You can survive for an hour. You can survive for a day. If you can survive for a day, you can survive for a week and so on and so forth. So just focus on the smallest amount of time and the most bite-sized piece you can endure and endure that piece, one piece at a time. The second piece of advice that I would give for Jonah or for future me who forgets all of these lessons, probably far sooner than I expect. Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) I'll put it on a sticker for you. Yes, give, give generously, give broadly and widely and be on anything you have to give. Give it when you have the capacity to and cast a wide, wide net because when you are in need, you do not know who is going to have capacity but everyone remembers when you supported them when they were in their crisis and they will show up because they have never forgotten how you helped them in that tiny way, in that most important moment. So I would say, don't think, give. And then the last thing I would say is also, always preserve enough for you. And those areas I think are sleep more than you need, drink more water than you think you should or can, and move your body outside every day. And if you can sleep, eat, move your body and phone a friend, every day, you are capable of doing so much more than you ever thought you could do. That's my advice. (laughs) Oh, and hide chocolate somewhere where you can find it later and be really excited. Hide presents for yourself. (laughs) Hide presents so that like when we started this interview, I had to pause for a moment and go get a different pen. I shouldn't even look for the pen that got lost is what you're saying. (laughs) Because someday I'll be on my hands and knees on the floor here and be like, oh, look, it's that pen that I lost. I should probably throw some chocolate down there with it. Just like sprinkle it so that I. Yeah, as long as you don't have ants, that'll be really, it's a really good idea. <laughs> oh, but I have dogs. Oh. See, every good idea has like a pause moment where you got to reassess. 
I love this. I like this. And, and as you were talking, I was realizing that Tori, I don't know if those are actually things that you learned from this year or if they're things that you used this year and you just learned that they are, that you just relearned and got cemented that that's the way because yeah. you and I had been doing some of that before yeah. this pandemic and it just got deeper during the pandemic. Like, yep, worked again, worked for cancer, worked for this, worked for a pandemic. This is the good stuff. You know, like you sent me cookies the other day and, and, I was like, why are you sending me cookies? And it wasn't until you were like, I have fond memories of that waffle you sent me. And I'm like, oh, you sent me cookies because I sent you a waffle. And let me just say that white chocolate macadamia nut cookie, Tori, they arrived warm. They were warm. And it had a kind of crisp to it that wasn't like the stale crisp. It was like a just perfectly baked out of the oven crisp. And for the briefest of seconds, and every time I've eaten them, because you sent quite a few of them, every time I eat one of these cookies, for the moment that I'm eating that cookie, I don't think about anything else other than how goddamn good that cookie is. <laughs> Sometimes you just need a cookie. <laughs> I know, I know. I can't fix the world for you, but I can send you a cookie. <laughs> and just like the oracle said, in that one moment in the matrix and she gives him a cookie and she goes, by the time you're done with that cookie, everything will be right as rain. And it's absolutely true. So Tori, thank you for the year. Thank you for the years prior to this year. Thank you for the cookies. Thank you for the friendship. Thank you for the community. And thank you for all of the lessons that, we seem to just be talking about and reminding each other and teaching each other. Just the other day, I was talking about baby dinosaurs. And I mean, it's just, I mean, it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime of lessons over a year of conversations. And I am forever grateful. And I, I hope that everything good lasts as long as it can. Um, and knowing that when it doesn't last anymore and the bottle of goodness has run dry and it's empty that we can turn to each other and see if we can fill it up. Maybe I can't fill up all of it, but I could give you a good little head start and you can keep looking to others and we can just keep playing this, this game until we're able to change it. So thanks. You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your pandemic survival podcast sponsored by the New Economy Coalition, a membership-based network representing the solidarity economy movement in the United States. Visit NEC at neweconomy.net. Until next time, I'm your host, Felicia Perez. Stay well.